Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So Bartimaeus, and his name literally means son of Timaeus. That's what Bartimaeus means. He's a blind man, and he's sitting on the roadside begging. I wonder how many years he'd sat in that same place. I wonder how long he had felt his lack. I wonder how long he had held out hope for his life to change. I wonder how many times he had given up hope that his life would change. He hears the crowd. Somehow he picks up that it's Jesus, and he'd heard of Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. That was a messianic title. This is the one who is sent from God. Whatever else Bartimaeus did or didn't know, he knew to go to God for help. And he prays a very simple prayer, makes a very simple request, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. You know, our prayers... Uh, don't need to be long. In fact, I find the more desperate we get, the shorter our prayers become. Whenever we find ourselves connected to what is deeply true in us, whenever we connect to our deep desire, to our ache, to our pain, we can get right to the point. We don't need lots of words. One sentence prayer does pretty good. Mercy. Is there any word better than mercy to reflect the hope we have and the desperation we have for God to help us? One of the oldest prayers in the Christian tradition is the Jesus prayer. There's a couple different versions of it, but the the one that I typically use is just, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. This is a prayer used across traditions, but particularly the Orthodox have been the ones to, to safeguard this and to pass it on and to tell us it's a way of prayer. And I know for many Orthodox friends, like this prayer is just, it's like, it's like the rhythm in their heart. <laughs> and isn't it a beautiful prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Sometimes it can get whittled down if that's just too long. Jesus, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. I've told y'all <clears throat> that one of, uh, one of my issues is fear. I've grappled a lot with obsessive fears over my life. And there's lots of reasons for it and lots of things to do about it. 
But I will tell you that there are moments where I'm overcome by fear or by some dread or terror. And the only words that come from my heart are, Jesus, mercy. <laughs> Jesus, mercy. I know um, some of your stories enough to know that you know that place too. And I want to remind you that Jesus is absolutely the one to go to because he is the God of mercy. I think the story of Bartimaeus raises for me some questions. I have to ask myself, is Jesus the one that I run to? Do I allow myself to ever deeply feel pain or sorrow or anger or fear and then go to Jesus with it? Do I ever allow myself to connect with other people's desperation or pain or sorrow or anger or fear, to take it in, to bear it with them, and then to go to Jesus with it? I love, I used to, when I was a younger pastor, I used to hate the fact that people knew I was a pastor sometimes because I was still living in reactionary mode and I knew all the stuff that people assume about pastors. And I'm very aware of the pain that a lot of pastors have caused and I don't want to be associated with that. But I've come to really love the fact because it gives me a chance at times to bear with someone else some pain. To ask someone, can I, can I pray with you for God's mercy? I don't have an answer. And no matter what you've told, I probably cannot pinpoint a Bible verse that's going to make all this better for you. But I believe that Jesus Christ is the healer of the world. And can I pray for that Jesus to have mercy on you? And when it's the deepest honor is when somebody says, I don't think I can actually believe that, but I'll let you believe it. <laughs> what a gift it is to pray for someone, to offer them the mercy of Jesus. Are we willing to trust Jesus with our sorrows and our unfulfilled hopes and our uncertainties? The crowd tries to hush Bartimaeus. Stop it, you're making a scene. I know you've got troubles, but this is not the day for that. Be quiet, get out of the way. And don't you love how truly desperate people won't be quiet? The scripture says that Bartimaeus only got louder. The more he was hushed, the louder he got. I love it. Son of David, he said again, have mercy on me. And maybe the most powerful two words in this story, Jesus stopped. There was probably hundreds of people around him. The noise was loud. They needed to get somewhere. There was Messiah stuff to do. And one person, one blind beggar, cried out to Jesus, and there was something 
that Jesus heard and he stopped and he stopped the crowd. Do you know that Jesus stops? Do you know that Jesus hears you when you cry for mercy? Do you know that Jesus bends his ear toward you and listens? Do you know that Jesus pays attention to your sorrow? Call him, Jesus said. Cheer up. Get on your feet. He's calling you. And the scripture says he throws his cloak aside. Another version says he abandons his cloak. This is a big deal. Do you wonder why the scripture would point out that he throws his cloak aside? It's probably one of the only items he owned. There was something about this Jesus that made him throw aside his one thing of safety. It's where he would have collected and gathered his few belongings. It's where he would have put the coins, the few coins that he was given. It's the one thing that would have protected him against the elements. It was probably one of the few things that was absolutely his. And he tosses it aside. When Jesus calls you, we can toss everything aside. And it describes him as running to Jesus, a blind man running. He comes before Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? What a question. Isn't it curious that Jesus would ask this? I mean, wasn't it obvious? But Jesus wanted Bartimaeus to hear the question and to respond, what do you want? I like to ask this question, particularly in conversations where we're looking for clarity and clarity doesn't seem to be coming. Or conversations where it's just, there's a lot of noise, which means most of our conversations. And it's just, it's hard to really get to the heart of things. But if you can begin to ponder this question, what do you want? You can begin to go to a deeper place. And I don't know about you, but I hope, well, let me back up. I hope you've had the experience and the gift of having someone ask you a question like this and really want to hear your answer. I hope you've had someone ask you the question, what do you want? What are you hoping for? What is really the ache in your soul? What is it that you're most restless about? But oftentimes, with the circle of friends I have who would ask that kind of question or when Miska asks it, what do you want? Like, a lot of times I have to say I don't really know. I have to think about it. On one hand, what he wanted was obvious, but perhaps this wasn't just about fixing a problem. Jesus, it seems, with Bartimaeus, as with everyone, wanted to touch the very core of his life the core of his hope. 
Rabbi, Bartimaeus answered, I want to see. Go, Jesus said, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, I want to be really clear and careful here. We all have lived long enough to know that our healing does not always come like this in a flash. Sometimes our healing actually has to go through suffering. Jesus had just told his disciples in the reading prior to this that he was going to give his life for the world. Over and again, Jesus told his disciples that following him, pursuing the life that is true, it would involve suffering and certain kinds of death. But there's something happening in this story that is profound. Bartimaeus is the only person we're ever told in the Gospels that Jesus healed and we're told their name. We're told that Bartimaeus, and then Mark wants to take great care to tell us, those of us who don't know the language, that what Bartimaeus means is son of Timaeus. Timaeus means honor. Mark is telling us Bartimaeus is the son of honor. There is something remarkable about this man. And why would there be something remarkable about Bartimaeus? He's the one with little education. He's the one with meager resources. He's the one that most of us would have expected to have minimal spiritual insight because he probably hadn't received the instruction in the Torah that everyone else had. Why was he the son of honor? Why was Bartimaeus able to connect so directly with his deep longing and then in desperation to take it to Jesus? when those with the most spiritual experience and resources seemed to not have a clue. You can't understand the story of Bartimaeus if you don't understand the story of James and John that we read two weeks ago. It's in the same chapter. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said. And if you're reading along in Mark, whenever the disciples approach Jesus these days, you're starting to sort of like, what are they going to say? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus said. There are two times in Mark's gospel when he asked the question. This is the first. What do you want me to do for you? And they replied, Britton preached on this, you remember? You know it's coming. Let one of us sit at your right hand and let the other of us at your left in your glory. And all God's people across time and history do a face palm. <laughs> James and John, are you kidding me? You have one request to ask the creator of the universe, the one that you've walked with, the one who's told you he is leading to give up all power for the sake of love. And the one question you're going to ask is to get the seat of honor. Are you serious? And Jesus says, 
you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink of? There was something about Bartimaeus that when he came to Jesus and Jesus asked him what he wanted, the answer he give, gave was real and true. And Jesus loved and admired it. And when James and John came to Jesus, and when they were asked the same question, what would you have me to do for it? Jesus' only response is, you have no idea what you're even asking. I don't know all the reasons why Bartimaeus was able to answer and to speak from a place of such honor and such goodness and such truth and reality so that Jesus could meet him there. And why James and John, who had all of the privilege and all of the resources and all of the reasons to have been able to ask a good question or to ask for a good request, didn't. All I can say is that Bartimaeus had entered into his suffering in a way that allowed enough of the ego to be stripped away. Enough of the demands for his life to be stripped away. To release enough of the image and the pomp. He had, perhaps by no choice of his own, he was his bare self. And he brought his bare self to Jesus. And he cried out for help. On this day, he was not self-guarded with cynicism. He wasn't playing any religious games. He wasn't trying to amass power or status. He knew that he was desperate, and if Jesus didn't help him, then he was ruined. And from that place, he could come to God, and Jesus could say, what do you want? And he could say, I want to see. And Jesus said, ah. You, you are the son of honor. The very thing that James and John wanted, which was honor, was the very thing that Bartimaeus was. This story doesn't have, for me, for you this morning, a tidy ending. I think most sermons shouldn't. But this is what I think I want to offer you today. Do not waste your suffering. Do not waste your suffering. I know some of the stories in this room, and they're so heavy, and they're difficult. But we have a choice about where we're going to go with that. We can turn inward, we can turn bitter, we can turn cynical, or we can run to Jesus, who is the healer, we can believe God's promises that in the cross and resurrection, new reality happens. That our lives and our hearts and our stories can be healed. That we don't have to live out of a wrecked place. We live with a scar that always reminds us of the healing that God is doing, but we are aware that God is actively healing. When we talk about the restoration of Christ, in our rule of life as a community, what we're saying is that God loves us and renews us and the suffering is real, but it's not the end. And the struggle, I think, would be if we waste our suffering, if we just turn inward, 
if we live concocting our own proportions out of our life, if we let our faith dim, if we surrender the belief that God in Jesus Christ is acting redemption in the world, if we just live in the small story of our wounds instead of how Jesus is meeting us in our wounds. In 2002, I was in Boulder, Colorado with a friend named Ken, and we were eating at Noodles and Company. It was my first time to eat at Noodles and Company, and they had an outdoor patio, which is great in Colorado. And we were eating, and a guy named Perry began to walk up. It was a late lunch, and Perry was obviously drunk. He was soiled with his clothes. And he went, was going around to the tables that the servers hadn't cleaned up yet, and he was picking the scraps off of the, off the plates. And he came over to our table, and he said, because uh, we were kind of finishing up, and he said, are you all about done? Yes, I can, can I have your leftovers? And I was like, leftovers? No. <laughs> Let's go get something to eat. So we went inside, and he wanted uh, chicken fettuccine with blackened chicken. And so we got a plate, came back. He sat down. He began to tell us his story. It was a story of uh, he was a Vietnam veteran, and his life had just gone completely south after Vietnam. And he was obviously struggling with some mental issues, and his grasp on reality was obviously not complete. And he was sort of circling stories of Vietnam and really violent stories and then things about Nixon, and it just kind of went all over the place. But there was a moment somewhere in that story where his, his clarity became crystal clear. And all those stories went away. And he began to talk about what he was really hopeful for, wanting, sorrowful about. He had a family in Philadelphia, and he had grandkids who he'd never seen. And he was afraid that he was going to die and he would never hold his grandkids. And the moment he began to, to say that, his eyes turned red, they became moist, a, a kind of mental clarity came into focus. But as soon as the pain became obvious, he, he went away. And he jumped back into these cycling stories about friends who were killed, the violence he'd seen, Nixon, etc. So it was time to go. My friend Ken interrupted Perry and said, Perry, look him in the eyes. And he looked him in the eyes and he said, Perry, call your son and go home. Do it today. I think we gave him some money so he could get a bus fare. I don't even remember or call his son. The one moment where Perry's mind was clear was when he was in touch with his deep sorrow and his deep desire. And there was so much hope that Perry's life didn't have to end the way he feared it would. And that desire and longing, that could have pulled him home. I've often wondered what happened to Perry. Did Perry get back to Philadelphia? I hope to God that Perry did not waste his suffering. 
Because that suffering, if he would pay attention to it, it could leave him home. It's exactly what it did for Bartimaeus. It is exactly what it can do for each of us. If we'll have the courage to enact our faith. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.